be opening your Bibles uh, to Luke uh, chapter 1 as we continue to work on our uh, sound system here. Our apologies. A lot going on right now in the church as we approach the holidays. Um, uh, First off, just to remind everyone, we are trying to get a survey from the church body uh, just to uh, really think about, you know, our meeting uh, times, locations, um, and also just the quality of our meetings. And so uh, you should have gotten a survey from Penny. Where's Penny? Penny, raise your hand there. If you didn't get a survey, see him immediately after service. It doesn't take long to fill it out. If you have one, please get that to him before you leave this room. He'll try to be there at the door uh, at the end of service. Um, of course, as we've seen people trickling out over and over the last few Sundays, the kids are getting ready for the uh, church Christmas play next Sunday. Uh, we'll be here at 4 p.m., same time, same place. But it's a great opportunity to invite our neighbors, our friends. Um, our co-workers, uh, fellow students. Uh, so just a, really, uh, just a reminder to uh, really use that as an opportunity to share our faith. Uh, uh, you know, I was talking to a guy who reached out to uh, where Eva does ballet, and he's not a guy who would ever go to church, but he'll, he'll come on Christmas Eve, he says, uh, and then he's out of town, unfortunately, next Sunday, so that didn't work. But uh, anyway, use those invitations and get the word out. So we're back here next Sunday, but as, uh, as Walter said... Uh, the, the, the last two Sundays of the year, we're not here. Uh, we're having house church on Christmas Day throughout the city. Um, uh, see your family group leaders or your friend if you're visiting uh, where we were meeting throughout the city uh, on that particular Sunday. And then the uh, first Sunday of the new year, we will not be here. We're going to be, of course, at Smallwood Manor uh, where we're having our church retreat. And so, uh, again, if you're uh, planning on coming out that day for service, we want every, everybody to be there. Uh, and you need to get uh, registered, though, uh, for that Sunday. Even if you're not coming for the retreat, please just get registered uh, for the Sunday service. Um, last Sunday, uh, we looked at Luke chapter 1, and we talked about dealing with doubt. As we looked at uh, this priest, Zechariah. Um, and this uh, incredible call that he was given uh, by an angel uh, to be the, 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 the father and his wife, uh, Elizabeth, the mother, uh, the forerunner to the Christ. Of course, John the Baptist, who will break the 400 years of, of prophetic silence uh, that Israel was going through at that time. Uh, and so uh, tonight we're going to look at uh, quite the opposite idea, this idea of being filled with faith. As we look at uh, uh, the angel Gabriel moving on and talking to uh, the soon-to-be mother of Jesus, Mary. And we'll see all the faith uh, that that woman had uh, and see what we can learn from it tonight. And so read with me here in Luke chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 26 where we left off uh, last Sunday. It goes on, it says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. A town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. How will this be, she responded in verse 34, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. 
At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as I, the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said in verse 46, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will, be call, will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped His servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as He promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth in verse 56 for about three months and then returned home. Let's look at two quick points here from this text uh, tonight as we close out our time together. Uh, The first point here is the word wins. The word wins. You know, Mary, uh, she's approached uh, just as Zechariah was by the angel Gabriel. Uh, is faced with an impossibility that God said nonetheless would be true. He says, as a virgin who's pledged to be married to uh, Joseph, uh, and we know that from uh, the other Gospels, uh, uh, specifically Matthew's Gospel, she says, she's told that as a virgin she will be found with child from the Holy Spirit. And of course this is a, a, a miracle uh, that we call today the Incarnation. Uh, that, that, that God would become uh, a man, right? And that God would, would show up in, in the flesh, which is, of course, uh, who Jesus, the Bible claims, was and is. Um, and so it's a miracle, of course, that leads to what we celebrate uh, this season, right? The, the Christmas celebration is about the beginning uh, of that miracle, that God would come down from the heavens uh, to the earth in the form of a man. And, of course, it's a miracle that leads uh, to many doubting, the gospel story itself, right? But of course, for God to become a man, it would take a miracle. Uh, and, and, and so it's it's another way, uh, perhaps, to see um, uh, that, that, that miracles actually can help us to believe uh, actually more in God. Because uh, to see the incarnation, you know, in some sense, it's so amazing that perhaps it, it must be true. Perhaps it has to be true. Because uh, it is good news that God would come down to us. Uh, through, uh, through, through Jesus so they communicate ultimately to uh, his people. And that's the scripture here that it reminds me of, uh, John 1 verse 14 here that I have on the screen, uh, where John specifically says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The incarnation, uh, it's, a, it's a really encouraging thing and it really helps us to get a better view of who God really is. It says there uh, in John 1 14 uh, that the word became flesh. That Greek uh, phrase for word is logos. And uh, it was a Greek phrase that, that, that the Greeks used to describe the order of the universe, the, the divine reason behind the universe. And John says, well, that, that, that order, that, that, that power, God himself became in the flesh. He became a man. And, of course, he's referring here to Jesus. But not that he just became a man, but it says that he dwelled among us. Uh, that Greek phrase uh, is quite interesting. It's actually, literally, it should be he tabernacled among us. 
And if you go to the Old Testament, uh, God resided within the tabernacle um, before he had his permanent home in the tabernacle in the temple. And in the tabernacle, God resided only in the Holy of Holies. And you could not enter there or you would die. Uh, but God has come so close to us in the incarnation of Jesus that, that, that he's, he's now tabernacled among us. We, we can walk with him. He's come that close. Uh, and that's really what Christmas celebrates more than anything is that God came that close to his people. And so this is kind of the preview, right, of the Christmas story uh, that we'll, we'll look at together uh, next week. And so, so the virgin birth is one of the many miracles, of course, of the Christmas story. Uh, and it's one of many ways the word shows us its power and its might. It explains and reveals these wonderful truths of the Bible, right? Uh, John 1.14 and other things, and even just this revelation to Mary, uh, that as a virgin she's going to be found with, with child through uh, the Holy Spirit. Um, and so hundreds of years, ironically, before Mary gets this announcement uh, from the angel Gabriel, uh, the book of Isaiah uh, had already predicted this. In Isaiah 7, verses 13 through 14, uh, the, the prophet there says, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And notice for the house of David, right? Which is one of the, uh, one of the many signs uh, that Jesus fulfilled, that he came from the lineage of David. And what was the sign? That the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so it's not just Isaiah 7. Uh, where the word was clear on this, uh, the gospel records a lot of fulfilled prophecy uh, just in Jesus' birth alone. Uh, Micah 5.2 here, I've written them down, you can look at them later, uh, shows that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Uh, we know Jesus uh, grew up, um, he grew up in Nazareth, but uh, as the census was called uh, by Caesar Augustus, Joseph returned to his hometown, Bethlehem, and of course Jesus was born there, and we'll read about that uh, next Sunday a bit. Genesis 22.18 uh, says Jesus would come from the line of Abraham. Uh, Numbers 24.17, a descendant of, of Jacob, eventually David, of course, as well. Uh, Hosea 11, verse 1, uh, talks about how as a child he'll be called to and from Egypt. Um, and then um, uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 15, refers to that slaughter that occurs and why uh, Joseph, according to Matthew's gospel, had to flee to Egypt was Herod had heard about this supposed king of the Jews that had been born, and he had all all males two years old or younger slaughtered in Bethlehem in its vicinity. And so again, that was prophesied as well in Jeremiah thirty one verse fifteen. So Jesus' whole birth story, it just it just swims and it just saturates in this idea that that the word is true, the word is right, uh, and and the word speaks. Uh, to, to this great victory that's going to come prophetically through the birth of Jesus. And so here in Luke 1, uh, Mary, she seems, to, she seems to truly understand this and get what the angel says in verse 37, that no word from God, no word from God will ever fail. Mary is someone who seems to accept this from God at face value. And that, of course, is a great piece of faith, that we can hear God's word See what it says and believe that it is true and it will come true uh, in its prescribed time. You know, from the beginning of time until today, God's word has never failed. Uh, the prediction and actual virgin birth of Jesus uh, is just that. And it's one example of many, right? One example of many in the Bible. The word wins. It has and it, and it never will fail. And, and, and a great thing for us as Christians today is, is, is do we have that same belief? Do we have that conviction about the Word? 
That if, if, if the word says it, it's going to be a victory. If the word calls us to do it, we're going to find a win in the end. Because sometimes the word is very challenging. The word that the angel Gabriel gave to Mary, that was a pretty challenging call, don't you think? Uh, and we know Mary had to watch her own son die on a cross. That was not an easy call, uh, but it was the right call and it was the ultimate victory uh, for her and everyone else in the end as Jesus dies for our sins on that cross. You know, and we see some great signs here. I know as Christians we want to be people who believe that the word always wins. But we see some, some great signs of, of someone who lives that way uh, here uh, in Mary's life. Uh, just four things that stand out to me about a, a believer who really believes that the word wins in the end. I think the first thing we see here is that uh, we, if we really believe that the word wins, we're going to trust the word. In verse 34, she's given this great call uh, from the angel Gabriel. And she says, how will this be? Since I'm a virgin. It's a legitimate question, isn't it, at this particular point? Uh, she's engaged or betrothed, as they called it, to Joseph. Uh, that was a, a year-long period, but that was considered a, already a part of marriage in the culture in that time. And so uh, we know from Matthew's Gospel, Joseph considered divorcing her quietly um, because uh, she was already pregnant. And he thought that people would think that they had been adulterous together. But the angel tells him not to do that. And so he stays with her, and he, and he, and he, and he trusts uh, God's word as well, uh, as did Mary, through that, that, that challenging period uh, of time. Um, we know Zechariah, when the angel came to him, we just read this last Sunday, he, he had a similar question. How are we going to have a baby when we're past the age of having a baby? Um, but somehow Mary's question was, was, was still a faithful question, and Zechariah's was not. Uh, because as Mary says in verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be Fulfilled. So Mary, she really trusted God. She trusted God um, uh, with his word. The second thing here is that she was obedient. Uh, in verse 38, she says, I am the Lord's servant. Your, your word to me will be fulfilled. And again, that challenging period uh, where Mary and Joseph have not been married yet. Uh, they, could have been, they could have been accused of sexual immorality, and, and perhaps they were. Uh, by you know by by, by those in, in Nazareth, um, you know Jesus would have been considered you know a, a a bastard of a child, you know not not having a you know you know not having a, a legitimate father. All these things could have occurred, uh, but nonetheless, Joseph and Mary were obedient to God's word, uh, and they trusted God, and they did not get divorced, and they allowed Jesus to be born uh, despite that controversy. Uh, and so there's trust here, there's obedience. Uh, the third thing is there's urgency. I love what it says after she gets this message in verse 39. It says she got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea. And there enters Zechariah's home and greets uh, her relative Elizabeth. And they celebrate this great victory that God has brought both of them uh, in their lives. You know, when we really, really trust God's word and we know it's going to be victorious, we, we, we quickly obey it. We quickly trust it uh, rather than waiting. Uh, and lastly here, you know, she, she's filled with anticipation. Uh, we're going to look at this hymn here uh, uh, in verses uh, 46 to 55 uh, in the second point here tonight. Uh, but this, this, this uh, hymn, uh, it, it's known historically as the, as the Magnificat, uh, which is the, the first word of the hymn in Latin. Uh, and so it, it's known as that, and it was turned into a hymn over the years in the church. Um, we don't, I don't think we sing it. Um, but, uh, but the hymn, if you, if you go through it, and we'll look at it here in a moment, it's full of this, this, this eager expectation of the victory that God's going to bring. God's just spoken it. None of it's happened. But she's like, it's a done deal. 
It's set. God, God's going he's gonna, to he's gonna lift up the humble and, and, and scatter the proud. And He's going to lift up the poor and, and deal with the rich. You know, God, God's Word is going to be fulfilled. She has this faithful confidence. This faithful confidence as she hears God's Word through the angel Gabriel. You know, for the Word to truly win in our lives, we must respond to it. And Mary and Elizabeth here, they're a great example, as we just read, of of women who who respond to the Word. They respond to the Word uh, with trust and obedience and urgency and anticipation. You know, it reminds me of this this challenge of not just reading the Word, but really responding to it, uh, you know, and and the confidence that that can bring us in our spiritual lives. It reminds me of, of one of my favorite things growing up as a child. I grew up with all brothers, and we grew up in the countryside. Uh, in Ohio, and so we were constantly out in the woods. And one of the things we loved to play out in the woods, out in the forest, was was of course army. You know, and you know any stick became a weapon. You know, any rock became a grenade. You know, we were constantly playing army. And as we got older, it got more sophisticated, and there were more and more rules. But, but one of the things I remember always about army is I never lost. <laughs> It didn't matter what happened if my brother springed out, you know, behind a tree, you know. Oh, I had my force filled up. I'm not dead, you know. You know, if he shot me, and I, no, 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 I shot you first, you know. It, it didn't matter. Oh, no, no, you stepped in a landmine. You see that stick? That was a landmine. No, you're already dead. It didn't matter what they did, how they came at me, how they ambushed me. I always won. The victory was always going to be sure. I couldn't lose. And I think it's true as Christians when we really trust the Word, when we really obey it, when we really respond with urgency, when we really anticipate by faith what it's going to bring, we cannot lose. It doesn't matter what we're going through. It doesn't matter what we're facing. The Word has a solution. It has an answer. It, 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 our, our struggles and our strains and our ups and downs, they, they, don't, they don't fall to silence in the midst of God's Word. But sometimes as Christians, we can feel quite the opposite. Sometimes in our faith, we, we lose track of the Word and how it can always, no matter what may come, lead us to victory. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you've been through your trials, you've been through your ups and downs, and the Word, the Word helps you to find that victory in the end, no matter what perhaps that may have been. So no matter what may come with God's Word, when we trust, obey, respond, and anticipate it, you know, come what may, we can always win. And marry to me, it's a great reminder and picture of just that here in the text. So the word wins, and second, finally tonight, the revolution begins. The word wins, and the revolution begins. I'm a poet, and I didn't even know it. Um, the uh, the text here, as I mentioned already, um, goes on to this 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 beautiful uh, statement of faith that Mary gives here. Uh, that's been turned into a hymn and, and, and poem and other things that throughout church history uh, in verses 46 uh, through, through 50, 55. Um, and so after receiving this great news, Mary rushes to greet Elizabeth. And, and, I, and I love what the text says. You know, John the Baptist, he's already doing a great job being the forerunner of Christ. He leaps in the womb when Mary walks into the room. John, John was doing his job before he was born for Jesus. That's awesome. You know, there it's mentioned in, in, in verse 40, and then again, you know, uh, Elizabeth, who would have felt that, mentions it to Mary uh, in verse 44. And, uh, you know, Elizabeth is, is filled with the Holy Spirit, and then she says to Mary in verse 42, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill his promises to her. Again, we see, you know, Elizabeth saw Mary was so full of faith. So full of faith. And then she goes on 
uh, to give us this great faithful statement uh, about God. And so the, the, the Magnificat, as it's called here, uh, verses 45 through 55, uh, traditionally, as I said, that is the name from the first uh, Latin word there, uh, as the Bible for a while was written um, in Latin. It's a poetic statement of praise, right? Uh, by, by Mary herself here uh, in verses 46 to 55. Um, it's packed with meaning, I think, then and, and now. And, and one theologian uh, described it this way in my studies. Uh, he said, The Magnificat is both conservative and revolutionary, both personal and social in perspective. It is conservative because it affirms the fulfillment of ancient promises to Israel, but revolutionary because it proclaims the overturn of society. It is personal because it initially focuses on Mary, but it suggests that God's choice of her, a person of low status, represents in miniature what God is is going to do for the poor and powerless in general through Christ. And so, you know, of all these ideas here that the Magnificat uh, represents and, and, and portrays, I love that idea of revolution. Because when I think of, of a word that describes Jesus... To me, that's one of the best words you can use to describe Jesus. He was revolutionary. He changed the world, literally, spiritually, physically, in every possible way. If you look back on all the history of the world, who has changed the world more than Jesus Christ? I would say that that very few men or women in all throughout history could even come close could even come close to, to having the impact that Jesus had on the history of the world. He indeed was revolutionary. And so uh, the revolution begins here, right? And, and as we dive more into the gospel, of course, the revolution uh, will be fully alive and well as Jesus starts to preach uh, here in just a few chapters. Um, and so Jesus, uh, you know, after being born of Mary, of course, will bring about the finishing work of what Mary begins to describe here. Um, and so I believe she, you know, in, in her praise of God really points to, I think, three ways uh, her son Jesus uh, will revolutionize, uh, you know, uh, this day and age. And, and, you know, some churches tend to focus a lot on Mary. Uh, some churches go far as to say we should pray to Mary. Uh, there's nothing in the New Testament that teaches that. Uh, but I think we can learn a lot from Mary. Uh, Mary's faith is inspiring, right? Uh, but her, her faith really is just, is just really a faith ultimately in Jesus and what he's going to do. Uh, and so, you know, what are, what are the things that she really points to that Jesus' ministry will ultimately bring this, this revolution, as I said, uh, like no other? Well, I, I think the first thing we see here is that Jesus' uh, revolution will be a moral revolution. It will be a moral revolution. Uh, in verse 51, Mary says there in the Magnificat, He has performed mighty deeds referring to God with his arm. And, of course, this would also uh, certainly prophetically point to Jesus. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. You know, Jesus is going to challenge sin, right? And specifically, I I think pride is a great sin to mention because pride is ultimately sometimes the root of many other sins uh, that we as humans sometimes commit. Um, And so Jesus is going to, he's going to, through his death and resurrection, he's going to defeat pride completely. You know, when you see Jesus, a perfect man who died for our imperfection, there, there, there's no more pride, right, that any of us can have. You know, Jesus is revolutionary because he helps us see our sin clearly. He helps us see our sin clearly. And when we see our sin clearly, we must be humble. What else can we be, right, but humble? As Paul emphatically states here in the scripture I have on the screen, 
In uh, 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, he says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Paul says, hey, if, if you can't trust anything else, trust this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. You know, if we're humble, couldn't we all say this as well? If we're really humble and we really clearly see our sin in our lives, couldn't we say the same thing Paul said? But, but why can we do that? Because Jesus started a moral revolution. He came to defeat pride and all the sins that follow it in our lives. You know, the moral revolution, uh, you know, it, it first brings the fruit of salvation in our lives. It changes us. The moral revolution that Jesus brought. Uh, if we were living this way, well, now we're living that way. If we were living poorly, now we're living, we're living well. You know, we're, we, we change our whole life personally uh, because of the moral revolution that Jesus brought. Uh, and I can't think of anything from my pre-Christian life uh, that, that I regret not having anymore in my life. I can't think of any sin that I, that I regret letting go of because of Jesus. That moral revolution today. It still empowers me. It still cleanses me. It still changes me. Uh, and what's even more powerful is as a church, we come together. And it's a room full of those who have been changed right by that moral revolution. And then we can be that city on a hill. You know, that light in a dark place, right? Uh, to get the word of Jesus out even more. And so, it, you know, it's a moral revolution uh, that Jesus started uh, then and is still going on today through his people uh, and through his church. The second thing here is it's a social revolution. It's also a social revolution through Jesus that we get to uh, encounter as Christians. Uh, you know, Paul will later uh, say, uh, the scripture here on the screen in Galatians 3, verse 28. He says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave or, nor free, nor is there male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And as we said in the introduction of Luke, Luke's gospel will show us how important women are to God. Luke's gospel will show us how important the poor are to God. Luke's gospel will show us how important not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles are to God. And, and Paul's statement here in Galatians 3.28, of course, it, it crystallizes and says just that. All these social barriers, they're, they're gone in Christ. They're gone. Uh, it's interesting. Historians have marveled at this statement by Paul. One historian, Thomas Cahill, he says that this is the first statement of egalitarianism in recorded human history. If you go back into all the history that's ever been written down of, of mankind, this is the first statement of egalitarianism. There's never been one before this uh, that we know in recorded history. That's how, 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 how much Jesus revolutionized society at that time. Uh, you know, we, we in, in the 21st century, we, we think more that way, but, but for thousands of years, there was no such thinking. If you were rich, you were rich and proud of that. And if you read Roman writings, you read Greek writings, you know, some of the more moral societies that we were influenced by, they were the same way. But Jesus, he changed all that. He turned it upside down uh, through the ministry that he brought. You know, it has been said, we, we, we can call no man worthless for whom Christ died. Now, when we realize what Christ did for each and every one of us, it's no longer possible to regard anyone as beneath us. When we really understand that Christ died for all of us, every one of us, Christian or not, we, we should never look down on someone else. You know, the first hospitals, charities, social justice organizations, 99% of them have, have Christianity in their origins. Because, because their great teacher, of course, taught uh, these things that we should look out for the poor. We should look out for the, for the lowly. We should look out for those who are disenfranchised. So in Jesus, a social revolution began 
And still, hopefully, through the church continues today. And we'll talk about that here at the end. Uh, the last thing here is Jesus also brought, interestingly, an economic revolution. An economic revolution. This is a little different, right? But it's actually here in the text. In verse 53. Verse 51. I, verse 52, I'm sorry. I should have referenced on the second point. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Uh, that idea that Jesus has, has reordered things socially. That was the, the, the part of the Magnificat for the second point there. Uh, point 2B. But point two three or two C uh, is verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has set the rich away empty. It's interesting to think about because what, what kind of economy, we live in the UK, what kind of economy do we have? If you could describe it economically. It's capitalism, right? But roughly, it's, it's capitalism. You know, you... You take your wealth and you make more wealth with it, and it's your wealth, right? And that's a and that's a form of government uh, today. And so, as Christians, we have to ask ourselves: Are we capitalist with our money? Do we kind of approach our money the way our, our society tells us to approach it? it I, I, I make this money, and it's my money, and I'll kind of do what I want with it. And the question is: Does the Bible challenge that? And I think we all know the answer, right? Uh, Acts two, uh, forty-four to forty-five, the first scripture I've quoted on there. It says the early church, the picture there was all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And so there was this economic, this economic uh, mutual looking out for one another atmosphere in the early church. Uh, again, um, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, Paul describes a, a contribution to the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians 8, uh, verses 13 through 15. And he says there, as he calls them to give a contribution, he says, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. And so it's interesting. The point really here is, is not that the, the church tells people what to do with their money. I do want to clarify that. It's not the church's place to tell you or me what to do with our money that we earn. But it's this idea that we're going to look out for each other with the wealth that God gives us. That we're going to make sure that everyone in our church has a roof over their head. And food in their stomach and clothes on their back. And, and, and the more God blesses me, the more I should think about that financially. The more money I have, the more I should think, how can I be generous with that money? Where did that come from? That came from the teachings of Christ. Though, although he was rich, right? He, he emptied his very self out. He, he left heaven and, and came to this earth and died on the cross. He's the ultimate example of charity right there, right? Uh, when we look at the cross. And Jesus teaches the more we gain, the more we ought to give away. You know, and, and if we have less, if, if, we're, if we're not as well off financially, well, Jesus says you still should give. You know, he looks at the widow who gives everything she has to the contribution at the temple and he lifts her up as an example of faith. And so it's not really about how much money we have, but it's about what, what, what we do with that money that we have. Are we, are, are, are we revolutionized in our view of money? Jesus, he changed that. Uh, he changed uh, that forever. And charities and, and, and such exist many ways because of what Christ taught thousands of years ago. You know, it's, an, it's also an economic revolution uh, because uh, money, for some reason, oftentimes reveals. It reveals where our hearts are really at. Uh, it's an interesting uh, uh, quote I read this week on, on the Magnificat. 
the, the, the author, uh, William Barclay, said, There is loveliness in the Magnificat. But in that loveliness, there is also dynamite. And I, and I think when I look at this, yeah, it's this beautiful, you know, my soul glorifies the Lord and, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Verse 47, you know, and Mary says, He's been mindful of the humble state of His servant. But, but, he, but He's going he's gonna to bring down the proud. He, he, he's going he's gonna to humble the rich. He, he's going to make sure that, that no one is disenfranchised. And that is revolutionary talk right there. And that, that kind of talk threatens us. It challenges us. But that's the kind of ministry that Jesus brought. But he wasn't trying to harm us. He's trying to help us. And he was trying to help everyone else in this revolutionary ministry uh, that he brought some 2,000 years ago. Uh, God started an explosive revolution, right, that was and is meant to change the world for good. It was a moral, social, and economic revolution. And Mary's song here in praise points to just that. And so tonight, are you a part of the revolution is my question for you. Because Jesus brought it, but not everyone's a part of it, right? And you don't get like a membership card, sorry, it's not that cool in that sense. But Christians, if you're a Christian tonight, you're meant to be a part of that revolution today. You're meant to carry that on in in your neighborhood, at your workplace, at your school, in this city. We're meant to be revolutionary. But unfortunately, a lot of times the church just settles for being religious. To our shame. Because of our pride, because of our our cowardice, because of our fear. We get that wonderful light of Jesus in our lives and it revolutionizes our lives. It changes us forever. And praise God that it does. But then we we take that revolution and we kind of keep it for ourselves. And we just try to be nice people. Hoping to somehow maybe help our neighbor or help our friend. When really, no, we, we, we need to be revolutionary in our lives. And we need to share that message with others. We need to get it out there. Are you revolutionary or religious? And if that bothers you, maybe it should. Because that's the guy we're following. This ain't my agenda. Trust me, I'd water it down for sure. That's the call of Jesus. That's the ministry that he started. That's the ministry that he died for. And the Birmingham church should represent that. And the way we live. And the way we act. And the way we talk. And the way we carry ourselves uh, out in this world. The world doesn't need any more religiosity. We, we already have plenty of that. The world needs men and women who, who are like Mary here, who are ready and willing to embrace the revolution Jesus wants to bring. Are you living a moral revolution today? A life of repentance? When that sin rises up in your lives and you, and you, and you sin, you repent. You deal with that. You get help. You confess that. You, you don't want to do that again. That, that's being a part of that moral revolution. Or, well, yeah, you know, I struggle with that. Well, yeah, you know, I struggle with this. And it's no big deal. We've minimized it. Then we're, we're, we're leaving that revolution. And we're going somewhere else altogether, aren't we? If, we? if we minimize our sin in our lives. Are you a part of that social revolution? That when you walk, you walk through, through the streets of this city where we... Estimates say right now have 10,000 people who would be considered homeless. I saw that number. I didn't see that number in the news recently. I was, I was just I was blown away by that. I've read it in several articles locally that, 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 that the area of Birmingham has 10,000 people that social organizations would consider homeless right now. 10,000 people. And if we're not a part of the social revolution, when we see those people, we're going to walk on by and think, you know... 
they probably deserve that. You know, they, you know, they, they may be down on their luck, but I, I got my challenges too. And we may not really reach out to them and offer Christ to them the way we should. And like, amen, we can't fix those problems overnight. And we can't, we can't all have those people live with us. We don't even have that many people in the room to house 10,000 people. But, but, but if we're a part of the social revolution, we should care about that. We should want to help change that. We should be talking to uh, local governments. We should be joining volunteer organizations to change that if we're a part of the social revolution. And ultimately, we preach Christ and we, and we save souls. But a big part of that is how do I treat people? Who are down in their luck? How do I treat people who are of a different social class than me? How do I treat people who don't look the way I look? Do I look down on them? If I do, I'm not a part of that social revolution. And are we living in that economic revolution? You know, that shows up from, from, from the contribution we choose to give the church all the way to the charity that we choose to give when people are in need or we, or we don't choose to give, right? Again, you know, you know God, God has blessed us. And amen, we don't, you know, if, if, all, if all the world were reduced to a village the size of a hundred... You know, only, only, only a few of those would have, you know, clean drinking water. You know, only, only a few of those would go to, go to college. Only a few of those would, would, would make even past minimum wage. You know, it, it, we, we in the UK are living very well. And I know we have our challenges financially in this city and, and even in our church. But, we, but we, we have so much. And so we should all be thinking, how can I be a part of that economic revolution? How can I give as much as I can with whatever little or great that God has given me? Again, it's easy to, to dismiss that. It's easy to, to make it about our money rather than God's in the end. But man, when I think about Jesus' call and I think about this revolution, I want to be a part of that. And I know you do too, and that's why you're here. But let's not water it down. Let's not put a religious veneer on things and act like we're a part of that when sometimes we're just not. And we just need to repent. And some of us tonight maybe need to repent. If we were around Mary, we, we, we wouldn't be singing with her. We wouldn't be praising God with her because we wouldn't be feeling what she's feeling. And that's where our faith is lacking. And that's where we just need to grow and be filled with faith again. And how refreshing is it when you get back in the revolution? How refreshing is it when you decide to repent you know, and, and be a part of that again? And, that, and that, that's why we made Jesus Lord and that's why we're going to continue uh, to make Him Lord in our lives. Because He's calling us to something great and something incredible. You know, if you're not a Christian tonight, I want to encourage you to consider joining the revolution. God has a wonderful plan for you in this world through Jesus. But you've got you to gotta come in and be humble. You've got to come in and hear His words to you. And please let us know as a church how we can do just that for you in your life. And church, let's get and stay radical. I'm challenging you. I'm challenging myself. We need to be challenged. But more importantly, we need to be inspired. That's the Jesus that we're following. He's going to keep changing our lives, and He's going to keep changing our, our communities in this city through, through, through our changes that we continue to grow in and continue to have in our lives. But we've got to get and stay radical. We've got to be filled with faith, uh, like we see Mary doing just here. Uh, and so, like Mary, let's be filled with faith this holiday season. The Word wins, the revolution begins, and the Birmingham Church said, Amen. Amen. Thank you.